We acknowledge the original owners of the land on which we podcast, whose stories were told for thousands of years. Today, we are recording in Mianjin. We pay our respects to elders past and present who may be listening. Sovereignty was never ceded. A quick note before we get started that there may be some swearing in today's podcast. If you don't like swearing or usually listen with children in the car, you have been warned. You're listening to What in the NDIS Now, a podcast where I, Hannah Redford, and my friend Sam Rosenbaum interview participants and providers about all things NDIS. Hi, Sam. Hey, Hannah. How you going? I'm really well. How are you? Going well. It's the almost the end of the week. <laughs> As we record this. When you listen to it, it'll be a Monday. So it'll be the start of your week. So that's fun for you. Good old time recording and uh, linear time. Yes. So today we have the wonderful Simon from the Mindful Men podcast. Welcome, Simon. Hannah, Sam, thanks so much for having me. Really excited to be here and chat about everything NDIS and disability and, and what I do in that space as well. So yeah, really happy to be here. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. So, as we always start the show, where did you grow up? A very good question. So, as a social worker, context is really important. So, I live in the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, but I'm actually from Adelaide in South Australia. So, the northern suburbs of Adelaide. And I grew up in the 80s, 90s and noughties, which might, you know, feed into what we talk about around mental health and psychosocial disability. Essentially, a place that was low socioeconomic, welfare, manufacturing, trade, single parent households, unemployment, a lot of drugs, alcohol, that type of stuff. So didn't really paint the, the, the most positive picture for the northern suburbs of Adelaide. But if you've lived there, you'll know exactly what I mean. Um, so yeah, that's where I am. But these days up on the sunny coast, living a much different life, surfing on the weekends, little kids um, these days, doing my, my private practice, Mindful Men, plus also the Mindful Men podcast, which I love doing every single week. Yeah. And what brought you into the disability sector? I was, I was reflecting on this question earlier today and I grew up with disability in my house, but I didn't really recognise it as disability. And so my mum is deaf um, and to hear, like she doesn't do sign language, she, she has hearing aids. Without the hearing aids in, you know, she can't hear, but with the hearing aids in, um, she can hear. And so Disability was always a part of my life, but I just never knew it. Mum never recognised it as disability. And in, even when I became aware of this word disability in my older years, you know, going through university and stuff like that, and my mum eventually went to university, I said, Mum, you know, they've got disability supports that you can do uni a little bit easier because she was a, a mature age student. She said, I don't have a disability, Simon. I'm all right. I can keep going. And so it was always part of my life, but I never recognised it as being part of my life. I just thought it was the normal yeah, that was our normal family. But I specifically came into disability, I think it was 2018. I'd had a long career in the public service and I ended up um, joining the National Disability Insurance Agency as a planner and then eventually became a senior planner there. And I was here, I was fortunate to be up here on the Sunshine Coast for the rollout of the NDIS on the Sunshine Coast, Gympie and Moreton Bay region. So I was boots on the ground planner, trying to get everybody over from the state-based system previously into the this thing that we call the NDIS now. So 
I was there for four years doing different types of planning. For a lot of that time, I was a specialist planner in the child protection space. So I was the lead planner for child safety between Gympie and Moreton Bay. So I would travel to all the child safety officers and talk child safety and NDIS with them. Um, but then as time went on, I went into the hospital discharge work, did, did a lot in the psychosocial disability space as well, which happens to be now where I, I land as a social worker in private practice um, now that I'm outside of the NDIS. So, yeah, four years in the NDIA and then burnout in the NDIA as a planner prompted me to reflect on what I was doing with life and, and ultimately caused me to say enough's enough. I need to go out and try something a bit different. Yeah, I know what you mean about growing up in a house with disability and just not realising it. That makes total sense and life just feeling normal because isn't this what happens to everyone? <laughs> yes, that's right. We'd, always, we'd often joke like hearing mum's hearing aids, like if she didn't have them in, a little bit of wind goes through the house and they'd start whistling and we'd be like, mum, put your hearing aids in or... We're on the phone and everyone says this when I'm on the phone, I yell into the phone. Like I just do it habitually now. But it was because I was usually talking to my mum and for me, for her to hear me, I'd have to yell into the phone. So these little things that carry on from growing up, they're still around. But, yeah, we used to joke when mum didn't have a hearing aids in, we'd hear the whistle and that was life for us. Yeah, that's so, so interesting. So I'm really interested in the fact that you are a planner. (laughs) Yes. Um, because that that job sounds, well, first of all, sounds hard <laughs> because I like being on this side of the fence. I really can't imagine how difficult it is to do. And when there are a lot of constraints on what you can and can't do. And I just imagine that there were times when it would be really heartbreaking when you just couldn't give the funding that you thought would probably <laughs> should people should have. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The other thing I found maddening from the support coordination point of view is that sometimes, like, not very often you have the same people, right? But for for sake of the the argument, you'd have like the same people, the same evidence, and you get two different outcomes and you're mm. just like what the heck? <laughs> Old bugbears of why I'm not in the NDIA anymore. Um, it's probably important to know, I haven't been in the NDIA for about two years now, roughly. Yep. So it has been a bit of time and and I can't say what's happened in the two years since. I don't know how they do it internally. I can guess, I can guess a lot from you know, conversations just like this and the conversations I have with the participants that I work with. But When I started to when I left, there were almost like two different types of roles as a planner. When we started, it was trying to get everybody onto the scheme and get the scheme up and running. And there wasn't many supports around in the community. So, for example, support coordinators were very few and far between. Um, How Trying to manage, you know, agency managed plans compared to plan managed and self-managed plans. A lot of plans, particularly in the child protection space, were agency managed. And so we didn't have a lot of registered providers. And and in those early days, we'd also value that face-to-face connection and also going out to, to community and, and meeting participants in their homes or in the hospitals or in child protection or wherever they are and actually see them in their, almost like their natural environment. So you can get that additional context. Whereas towards the end of my career there, it, it, it was moving towards that national scheme, the truly national scheme where any planner from across the country could 
pull your plan out of a cloud-based system and work you know, with any participant across the country. The challenge of, the, of that being is how would a Queensland-based planner know what somebody in South Australia needs and who the support people are or, or whatever in that type of location. So that brings about a whole bunch of new challenges. I understand why they're doing it to try and lessen the load on a planner because a planner's work is hard. Like you're doing three to four planning conversations a day and me as a talker, as a social worker as well, my planning conversations could be anywhere up to about three hours. The longest I had was five to six hours. And that's just for one little family unit. And I was known as one of those guys that once you go into a planning conversation, you would be you'd be in there for a while. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was a good good hard conversation, but I always proud, prided myself on getting to know my participants really well and making them feel com- comfortable in a planning conversation and then getting the best outcome possible through their NDIS plan after that. Compared to the person next to me who would look at that same family or participant and do a completely different plan, would go in there for an hour and have a planning conversation, try to understand their full life in an hour, which is impossible. No one can do that. Maybe in reviews and stuff like that. And in the early days, we would have our cohort of participants. And so you'd likely see me again at the review. Or you could call me, you could actually have a phone number, you can call me and say, hi, Simon, I've got an issue with my plan. Okay, let's talk it through. I know because I remember talking to you last month or last year or whatever. Whereas it's much different these days, or or at least it was when I left. As I said, I don't know what's happened since then. But yeah, life as a planner was very difficult and burnout was a very big thing. And it took me about two years to burn out. But it wasn't just the NDIA. I have to have to highlight this. It wasn't just the, my work as a planner. You know, I've got over 30 years lived experience of mental illness as well. So trying to manage that. But I had a young family at the time. So we had two kids under three. I was studying my master's of social work. And then we had this little thing called COVID come along and lockdowns and all that type of stuff. So it all coincided with this one moment in time when my, pl- my planning work was getting longer and longer. I was missing things. I remember being in planning conversations so burnt out that I would be 10 minutes into a conversation and have no idea where I was. I was that stressed. And, and you know, you, you call in sick and everybody in the, in the planning office would, would freak out because that would mean someone else would have to pick up another planning conversation and read 10 to 15 to 20 reports in 10 minutes. So you're looking for keywords, looking for highlight, you're looking for risk very quickly over and over and over and over again the best part about planner was when I automated things. So plan rollovers, plan renewals made life a lot easier. But in the early days, that plan expiry date, that plan would expire. And there was a mantra in, in, in our offices in, in the southeast Queensland that no plan expires. No matter what happens, you make sure that plan doesn't expire because that means services expire as well. And so... I saw the, the the best and the worst of the planning experience and I happened to leave in around the same time that Labor came in and changed the way that they're looking at the NDIS and, the, and we've since had the NDIS review as well. So lots happened in that four years, four years and then also in the time post that as well. But I'm glad to be on the other side now as a provider and doing you know, my social work practice and, and supporting specifically men to work through mental health, disability, psychosocial disability, and just live their best lives. Yeah. Ah, the good old days when you could access a planner. (laughs) I remember that. (laughs) 
I think was... there's a few people that don't actually re- remember that at all, unfortunately. No. Yeah. <laughs> so many people have, have just jumped on uh, post that and I I remember when it came in when they started saying, no, you can't access straight to the planet. You have to now email inquiries every mm. time or you have to call the National Call Centre. You can no longer call the planner. It made everything 20 times harder and it's such a pain in the ass. And now that since COVID, they don't even do face-to-face appointments anymore. It's Mm. all over the phone. It is so much more impersonal and I, I hate the phone meetings. I hate them so much. It, it made me feel better because instead of driving between Gympie and North Brisbane every other day to do three to four planning conversations, because that's tiring. As a support coordinator, you know as well, driving around all your participants is a tiring thing. I do it now as a mobile therapist and it's 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 hot in our cars. Um, but a lot of that, it's an interesting scheme because it starts off as a scheme that's meant to be accessible, but they took all the accessibility away. So your planner was meant to be your, my NDIS contact was meant to be your contact. And it didn't have to be hard and complicated. But at the same time, they needed to protect planners because they were so overworked. And there were so many more participants than they realised were coming onto the scheme that the work still had it to get done. And so there was this, this tug of war between how do we get the work done between making this scheme accessible and giving participants access to information and plus all the bureaucracy that comes with a public service organisation as well. So it was it's a challenging scheme and and... I can see the benefits, but I can also see the pitfalls as well. So I'm looking forward to that last question you asked me about how we can fix the NDIS, but we'll get to that at the end. Yeah. <laughs> so, Simon, you were talking about that planning meeting being really, really personal mm. and you could see the real benefits for you as a planner getting to know and have that connection and get understanding. Yeah. When that sort of changed and we moved to this new model where it's phone connection, how did that, that really changed the way that planners had to work as well. Um, yeah. So that, how did that really impact the teams that, that, and that transition? And could you see the impact of that within the participants that you're having that planning meeting and the families as well? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's twofold for this question because COVID, before COVID, we had to do everything face-to-face. It was, you have to do it face-to-face, otherwise in exceptional circumstances, telephone. And so for people like me that like the face-to-face interaction, it was good. You know, we get to go in there, we meet people because you can see their body language when you're talking about certain things. So if you're talking about psychosocial disability and psychology supports or social work supports, whatever, and you can see them getting tense or something like that, you can go, okay, I need to focus here. This is a this is a disability support area I need to focus on. Whereas telephone, you couldn't, you can't do that. You can't unless they're swearing at you, which <laughs> used to happen. Um, <laughs> or they're coming or the support coordinator's in there really flying their flag or you see it glaringly out of a report that you're reading, you're not going to get that through the online thing. But then COVID happened and what happened, what actually happened is our productivity went through the roof for old planners. We got, we got through plans quicker, you know, more funding was going out than ever before. We could see more or we could talk to more participants. We could engage with more support coordinators. We had more time to read reports. For me, for someone who was on the road all the time, it was less time in the car as well. So it was more time on my at my desk. And in fact, this was the desk, my home office desk where it all ended for me. 
And so we had this, this tug of war of losing that in-person stuff, which was really valuable, particularly understanding disability supports to go into this online thing, which increased productivity, but you lost that connection. And so you'd, you'd start to know people by names. Like for, for me, I'm very good at recognising names. So I see the same support coordinators or same reports come through. Go, okay, I kind of know what's going on here, but you kind of lose touch with the disability support needs without that face-to-face. -face. So that was the biggest one for, I think, a lot of planners. But a lot of them also kind of felt relieved of not having to do the face-to-face -face, because it is also draining to sit face-to-face -face with someone and eyeball them and talk to them, either talk to them about their difficult stories, a lot of vicarious trauma in the NDIA, but also trying to understand complex disability, maybe where there's some language barriers or, or communication barriers, particularly if you're not familiar with that as well. So you'd also have new planners constantly coming in because of burnout and so forth. So you're training new planners who don't have disability experience as well. So you've, you're all these tug of wars that you're, you're dealing with um almost made for a perfect storm and now i can't talk for the last two years but in the reports that i write now and the the feedback that i get from support coordinators it's it's a lot of cut 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 which was the same back then i'm going to say it was the same back then where can you cut a plan because plans or schemes sustainability was the buzzword it was the thing that everybody was thinking about and it's the thing that you see in the media how can we make this sustainable and I think my view, view on that is if you actually fund plans appropriately, you know, you're going to have a sustainable scheme because for every dollar spent in the NDIA, I think it was every, you know, you return two to three, you know, times that amount through the economy. And so it's not so much about how much you're spending, it's about how much you're spending well and how well you do the process. Because, you know, I was talking to Hannah before and on the Mindful Men podcast around doing great reports. So if you have great reports from, from, suitable practitioners are out there who love what they do and they're getting paid the right pay and they're getting treated well, then you're going to have better information feeding into the scheme and then better outcomes coming out of the scheme. And so it's a really tricky question because, and everything's subjective in the NDIS. It's meant to be an objective thing, but the way I feel about the NDIS through my lived experience of the NDIS is going to be very different to the person next to me and the person after that. And some of us have allied health backgrounds. Some of us have medical backgrounds. Some of them have lived experience backgrounds. They're participants themselves. Other people are just there for the money, for the job. And that's understandable. It's a public service. That's, you know, that's the same with every public service job. It's the same with every job in the world. It's just, but how do we, you know, retain the best people? And unfortunately, they, don't, they weren't great at retaining the best people. The best people ended up in private practice or moving out to big providers because they didn't want to deal with the bureaucracy, the red tape, the silos that happened. So yeah, to get to your question, yeah, back to your question, the going online and stuff like that, it was good for some, but not good for others. Yeah, that makes total sense. I really appreciate that answer, particularly about sustainability of the scheme, that those words just really upset me, <laughs> piss me off, because I'm like, no, we should just fund it as well. Mm. Even if the money did go into some black hole, people with disabilities deserve to be funded at, for services to keep them alive, mm. you know. It, it really, th uh, you know, I think really does a disservice to dis people with disabilities to hear the constant chorus of sustainability of the scheme we've got to keep sustainability mm. of the scheme for sustainability of the scheme like 
You can certainly do that by, you know, reducing the silos. You know, silos in any public service agency are the death knell of any public service agency. But public service agencies all love them. I, in my time, I've worked in about four or five agencies, and the notion of financial sustainability is the same no matter which agency that you're actually in, as well. So before that, I was in immigration and border force. Before that, I was in sports anti-doping. I've, I've done some big things. I was in detention centres for, you know, refugees and stuff like that. Everything's always around financial sustainability. It's just about how do you word that so for it's the benefit of the community. You know, we've got a big disability community here and a growing one as well. In fact, it, it's, there's proof in the, in, in the scheme growing by how much disability is actually out there. We're empowering people to come forward and say, I've got disability, which is a fantastic thing. So let them on, fund them right, and stop trying to cut corners or, or silo everything, like because that just creates more red tape. And and when you silo, what you're doing, you're actually spending double the amount on internal, you know, planners, for example. You take away the you you disempower general planners like, like what I was, and and you create all these silo specialist teams. But all you're doing is passing a participants plan around to five or six different people when that original plan and could have made the decision and that's what it was when I started is I was the one making the decision I was the decision maker mm. um, and so many planners felt disempowered when they start creating silos and that I think goes a lot to the financial sustainability it's not so much what you're pressing approve on on the plan it's more so what's going on in the back end all the the admin and system you know drama they're, they're creating new systems and I, I was there at the original you know the the new design of the system that they're currently using and it wasn't flash. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know, you know, that's my personal perspective. Other people might think it's great, but, you know, that's where I think you can find the best cost savings is, is what you do internally in an agency as opposed to externally for the participants and the economy. Absolutely. I completely agree. You've got such an interesting background there and I <laughs> this is not the podcast but geez I would love to pick your brain on <laughs> so many more things it makes an interesting sorry Hannah um, it makes an interesting point there because uh, I was listening to the very first episode of reasonable and necessary podcast with Dr George and him and the, uh, the legal team from the summer foundation were getting into the principles and the foundations of the act and the ideas and everything when that was initially created is really different to where we're at now and hence why we've had to have the NDIS review and the Disability Royal Commission. And so I suppose it sort of um, goes back to how it affects the participants that we're sort of serving and a lot of those pain points that they've been having there. Yeah, and R&N criteria, you always hear it, like what is reasonable and necessary? To you, what is reasonable and necessary is different to me. And that comes back to that subjectivity in planners. There was, there was a point, especially just sort of like around pre-COVID and during COVID, where there was quite a very big difference on how we were, where, where participants were going, it's reasonable and necessary and what support coordinators understanding of how that implementation works versus how the agency as well was implementing and interpreting those sort of key words, which sort of I think the Bruce Bonahady reports there has called that out quite explicitly. That there's a very big contrast from when the, the idea and the building of that principle versus how it's been implemented and interpreted. 
Yeah, and for anyone who's read an, an act or a regulation, it's not exactly plain English. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you'd sit there and you go through training and training and training, and, and I'm fortunate that I've had my career so I can read it. But, but essentially when you're looking at an act or a regulation, unless it's black and white in there, it's open to interpretation. So, so the grey comes back into it and that subjectivity comes into it. And, and the same goes for choice of control. You know, we talk about that and it's embedded in, in the, the idea of the NDIS. But a lot of time planners would take away choice of control of a participant, how their plan's managed or who can support them or what supports can be actually funded in the plan as well. Yeah, and or it, creating stated line items sometimes yeah. I saw. And I was like, what? This isn't necessary. What are you doing? Yeah. And that all goes down to where in Australia you're from and what training you got. Like I remember when I, I joined the NDIA, we're going through planning and they're like, this is the best planning that's ever been done in the NDIA. I'm like, well, I'd hate to think what the people before me had gone through to create this thing and, and to become planners as well. And so interesting time. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic. There's so much good that comes out of it though, but also so much improvement as we keep saying to the scheme. And I think we need to get the bureaucracy away from making these decisions and designing designing it and actually get planners would be amazing people to come into these spaces. We used to say it a lot in, in the meetings that we were in the training room, like who, which planners were involved in developing this? And you'd often get, oh, somebody in Geelong, which is the head office for the NDIA. Like, well, they're different to someone in, in, you know, northern suburbs of Adelaide or they're different to someone in Bundaberg in Queensland or Perth in WA. Like, you need people that have, have real-life experience of being a planner, burning out and going, this is how we can do it better. Yeah, I I would love that. Yeah, it's the same for how do you make support coordination better? You've, you've got to talk to us. And then, yeah. you know, that's some of the point of our podcast is to listen to the people who are on the ground. Absolutely. And, 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 th and that's the beauty about podcasts is we can do this. We can give voice to people working in the sector. I've also had participants on my podcast, well, the Mindful Men podcast, talking about the differences between life pre and post NDIS, how disability supports work. You know, Hannah, I had you on the on my podcast talking about support coordination. What does that mean? I've had recovery coaches on there as well. And so the more we can voice our experiences from the grassroots, so I hate to use the word grassroots because there was an old grassroots Facebook page that's, that's notorious in NDIS. So I'm not sure if it's still <laughs> around. It's still, I remember, yeah. yeah. Still there. Do yourself a favour. Don't go in there if, you've, if, you've got, if you don't have things well, I, I, I try and avoid a lot of the, the Facebook groups, unfortunately, now, especially yeah. on the like the more provider-facing front, not necessarily what, the, what participants or the yeah. grassroots, inverted commas, sort of would join. And sometimes it just encapsulates the word toxic hmm. in its finest yeah absolutely. which is a really disappointing thing especially when we're meant to be supporting people and have understandings of how our words and our actions affect other people but sometimes it's not <laughs> i think sometimes we're our own worst enemies in you mm. know in, in a way that we just sort of become so negative or there's sort of the people joining us so like, you kind of get that burnout feel and then yeah. people that sort of experience burnout, you're going to go one, one of two ways. You either become very negative or and cynical or you kind of just go, hands up, I'm out, 
in its entirety. And I think I, I, I at points over the last several years, I think I've been at various stages of that. <laughs> I remember when, yeah. when, with, uh, when I first sort of got in the sector, I got really annoyed with a lot of unfounded questions like, how do I find this price guide or how do I find this? And they would open in a question and then it would be a various sort of bombardment of how dare you not understand what you're meant to be doing. We're meant to be looking after valuable people or just really poor misinformation as well. Yeah. So I, I got really annoyed and then started my own Facebook group for a period and went, right, if you're asking a question, do some Googling before yeah. you actually ask the question. I have to hold my tongue as a former planner and, and looking at that price guide, well, I think it's called the pricing arrangements or whatever it's called yeah. now. I like, <laughs> the I like the word price guide. Price guide sounded a bit easier to, easier to roll off the tongue, tongue anyway. Um, but, yeah, I'd bite myself. I'm seeing that same thing every single day in, in my Facebook feed and I'm in there to try and connect, connect people, connect them with information, connect them with my services if possible. But you do see that, like how basic questions, what is the NDIS? Yes. <laughs> how do you... You know, I want to be a provider and how do I do this, that and something else? And I think that's where that maybe the discourse is happening from the government, you know, around providers and, and, and dodgy providers and, and they're painting this the brush across everybody because a few bad eggs as well. And so I think some good can come out of the review and can tighten things up, but also we've got to be careful that we don't burn out the people who are supporting the people that we're trying to work with. It's, it's the providers as well because... Me as a provider, I am very, you know, careful about how I do business, about having the right policies and processes in place. I'm fortunate I have a lot of knowledge about the NDIS, so I'm often on phone calls with other allied health and saying that, that want to start working in this space and say, okay, well, this is how we get started, you know, based on my experience and, and this is what you're looking for and, and these are some other businesses who do really good work. You know, this is podcast, like your podcast. Go read, go listen to that, you know empower yourself with knowledge because that's the best way that you can move forward but you know we've got i think we've got a long way to go since the review as well nothing in government happens quickly i've learned that over my public service career so even though we've got the review i am hopeful that not all the bad that's coming out of the out of the discourse particularly will come to fruition i mean i think we're going into election year maybe next year is it? i'm not sure don't quote me on that um so you know, governments can change, things can change very quickly. I, I'm. It's coming up. And, it and as you said, up. things take a long time. And I, I think Hannah and I, when we were talking, when the review came out, and especially on that five-year implementation time, mm. um, I think we had quite a good giggle off, off <laughs> mic about the, it's it's very idealistic mm. of let's implement this within five years. And admittedly, it's not, not a government agency making this or government or public service person making these kind of recommendations uh, on implementation timeframe. But it, it, it is quite an interesting one that it's five years, but it took a very long time for the act to be established. There was lots of sort mm. of hurdles and challenges and that didn't take it a long time. And 10 years later, we're still talking about the implementation. <laughs> it almost uh, feels like we're still in rollout phase. Like, mm. you know, well, if you think thought. about it, Western Australia, Queensland came in very late. So yeah. we're kind of three, four years between the two states sort of into it. Whereas, and you said, my home town of Geelong had been in it since kind of day dot, mm. being part of the rollout phase. Yeah. Um, so it's it's very, it's quite an interesting concept of five years implementation. If it, if it even happens at all. Mm. You know, yeah. And, and this is, and I see a lot of angst in the community around 
you know, the, re the review and, and I was talking to Hannah earlier around I'm part of a community of practice of support coordinators and they're all worried about being out of jobs and, and being navigators and essentially but whether that, that happens you know we'll just have to wait and see and, and just hold it hold on hold tight and in the meantime just continue showing up for participants because that's what we're here to do. Well, exactly. And we don't know that the government is going to take up what recommendations. And like Bill Shorten is unfortunately doing a sales campaign to sell the recommendations to us, which does make me nervous that he likes a lot of the recommendations and would accept them. However, he is also talking about doing it with us. You know, hopefully he listens to someone in the community that says, hold on a second, this is stupid. <laughs> this this bit or that bit is stupid. And like you said, so they have to accept the recommendations. They then have to put them into law. Like that has to get passed and it won't necessarily get passed. The opposition may try and block it. You know, there's all sorts of things that could happen. And then it like, then it takes a further, you know, more time. Like it's not, I think, like you said, support coordinators for now should just show up for their participants and you should be mindful of what's happening, but not stressing about it. Yeah. Cause that then, you know, rubs off onto the participants. If you're walking up to work stressed about what's going on, then, then the participants start worrying and their families start worrying their supports. And it just becomes this negative cycle that everyone's stressing for something that hasn't happened yet. And and I know what this feels like because having lived with OCD for, a, you know, for the majority of my life, that's all my brain's done for 35 years, you know? And, and, and so it's, it's, it just doesn't get you anywhere. And so you just show up, do your best job. And I think it probably prompts a lot of service providers maybe to diversify their, their business streams and go, you know what, if the NDIS changes, what other supports can I provide to the broader community? Is it education around disability awareness? Maybe pivoting into the veterans affairs type space or, or you know, mental health is a big challenge. And, I, and this is another bugbear of mine is how they treat psychosocial disability and mental health and all that type of stuff as someone who's a, both a lived experience therapist and a therapist, like it's really challenging. Um, so it's just about holding tight and just, yeah, just showing up and being mindful. I like how you said that, being mindful about how you're showing up, what's going to happen and, and just know that these things take time to play out. Mm -hmm. So as I know it's been two years since you were a planner, but when you were a planner, when you looked through reports, what are some key things you really needed to see in that in those reports from the allied health professional? We'll start with the allied health professionals first. What are some of those key things that you needed to see in those reports? Uh, probably that the report is actually for the participant. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> the amount of reports that I had read over the years where... You'd start off and it might be the participant, but then the next paragraph is another participant and then there's somebody else who you don't even know if they're participant. That was quite obvious. And and I think that was reflective. It's reflective of the industry, of how under the pump the industry is. and But also professionalism as well in, in terms of um, any report, not just the allied health, but any report that I used to see as well. 
but also staying in your lane. One of the things that I used to to say, and that's what I say, you know, I do in my you know therapy business now as well, is I don't necessarily go into other support. What I think, you know, you need X, Y, Z, and something else. I just, you know, I'm a social worker in doing counselling or therapy. I just rec- recommend that kind of support unless I know there's a, a conjoining support that I can also complement that as well. I used to see a lot of reports where they'd say, oh, you need speech therapy or psychology, you need social, you know, social workers or a support worker or you need transport. But these are people that aren't necessarily the types of people that would, you know, most appropriately recommend that type of support as well. So I would say, you know, stay in your lane. And that just improves the credibility of your own report as well. And so there were the, there were the key things, making sure that the participant is the right participant, but also staying in your lane and highlighting the growth, but also maybe, you know, the, the capacity building or the growth, but also what are the challenges for not realising that? Because as a planner, and I used to pride myself in this, is just because you didn't achieve that in this plan, it doesn't mean we can't fund it in the next plan because there might have been a history. And COVID showed that there was a lot of people that couldn't, fully utilise their plans because of COVID lockdowns. So they couldn't go out in the community or they couldn't go and see their speech therapist because the speech therapist wasn't online. They were only in person and all these types of nuances as well. But then it also comes back to the planner as well and the NDIA to recognise that type of stuff and go, you know what, I'm going to, we're not about full cutting costs and, and financial sustainability. We're actually about, you know, sustaining the participant over the long term because we can fund, you know, front-load plans early, and this was the idea back then, front-load plans early, get them this capacity-building supports, and then eventually that that peak comes off and then they can live that life that they wanted to in in, in the way that they want to do that as well. And so it's, it's, it's to and fro, but some of the, just from a report perspective, but also like reports, I used to see that would have five, five or ten different, you know, assessment tools in them when a planner doesn't need to see all of them. They just need to see a summary because a planner is reading multiple reports. And, it, you know, some of the reports I was seeing 100-plus pages. So if you've got multiple of that for a participant, you might have in a half an hour to an hour of prep time before that. Usually it's about half an hour. You don't have time to read 100 pages. And so a therapist or or any any professional in the, in the disability space might have spent seven, eight, nine hours and, and charging that to a participant's plan your reports aren't going to get read word for word. So really condense it. What do you actually need in there? And this is where the NDIA's website, the NDIA's website has some assessment tools on there about evidence of disability. So maybe using those more instead of all the five or six things that are in your repertoire just to show that you're a good OT or you're a good speech therapist because planners, they're everyday people. They're not from the same background as you. So they won't get it, you know. Um, and so they're the key things is, you know, condense your reports, <laughs> keep it for the participant that's actually the participant, and, yeah, stick to your lane. I think that one of the issues of, you know, the really long reports, 20-odd pages, you know, sometimes can be intimidating. However, one of the things I think is that even if the planner right then did not read every single word... It still needs to be a really thorough report because yeah. if it ends up at AAT, someone will read every single word you've got there. So it is still worth writing every single word. I do hear occasionally some th- 
therapists say to me, oh, they don't listen to me anyway or they don't read the report. And I'm like, that's a really poor attitude to have because if this were to go to review or go to AAT, someone along the line will have to read every single word, even if the first person doesn't. So still write it, still make every single word count. But, but yeah, like what I really like to see is a few tables towards the end that are like, this is the summary. This is the bit I really need you to read. And that it's really well highlighted that this is the part you really need a planner or LAC to look at. And, and risks, you, you have to put the risks to the participant hmm. in there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's finding that balance between too short a report and not enough information and too long. And I liked how you said it, make every word count. So say what you need to say without going into waffle land, but also don't miss the key things like risks. And, and those tables were, were beautiful, particularly used to like getting Word documents so you can copy and paste a bit easier than PDFs. But that was back, that was just my preference. Um, but yeah, like, yeah, make it easy, as, as, as easy for the planner as possible. You know, planners are not the enemy. They're just there to, they're the person providing the, the support. They're actually one of the most crucial people to get the participant the right support. So the more easy you can make it for the planner, the better, but things may go pear-shaped. In fact, they do go pear-shaped. That's why there's so many reviews and that's why the AAT is there to essentially, and the AAT is not just there for the NDIS. This is a, a government-wide thing as well. So in all the other public service agencies, I had the AAT still there doing that same job. And and they're there to kind of like be that compliance check at the end when things have gone too pear-shaped that the NDIA can't re you know, reconcile that, utilise those those services. But before you even get there, often I used to say to, to participants, and I still say it today, is freedom of information. There's also another one called, I think, participant information access request as well, which is the, the light touch FOI. Most people wouldn't use that. I'm like, why? You If you're worried about a planner or, or in, in any government agency, this is as well, about a government agency not utilising all your information that you provided. Maybe they didn't read that report that was crucial. You can actually do this thing called an FOI request, a freedom of information request, which is for free from my understanding, and get the information about what they used to make the decision, how they did it, also find any subjectivity. So there's these things called Microsoft Teams and Skype where planners would talk to each other, emails, and you can get that information if it's relating to you and see if there's any any prejudice there, you know, and actually find out, did a planner prejudice me because I've got autism and they're, you know, they've got autism and they don't believe I need sensory cancelling earphones, for example, because, you know, that's what I need, that's what my report says, but the planner didn't think so because they bought their own. You know, there's these, these nuances that you can do and so empower yourself with knowledge. So before you get to review, before you get to AAT, FOI and, and the PIA, so the Participant Information Access Request, they're your best friends because they will give you the information that you need to make an informed request for a review or informed, you know, approach to the AAT. I think that one's a really, um, a really good insight and tip for everyone That's do it thing, do going it through a lot of challenges because <laughs> i had a similar conversation yesterday um where there's been some challenges getting some reviews and the coc through and my current thinking or th is based on the age that the person's about to turn 65 
Mm. So I can see that, that, that this is continually sort of being pushed back just so that that crossover happens and then it doesn't have to act on anything, which is not a very good thing in no, itself. No. Um, so I'll uh, take that <laughs> take that advice and pass that on. So that, that's <laughs> a helpful hit today. But um, you we've spoken a little bit about your your podcast, the Mindful Men podcast, yes. which is available. Yes. How did, do you want to tell us a bit about that? How you got into it? Because you're up to a hundred and seven episodes out at the moment. Absolutely, yeah. So, so I mentioned burnout right at the top of the show, and and, and everything happened, and. And part of my recovery from burnout was to go back into the agency and share what burnout is so other planners could recognize it because I knew other people were, other planners were struggling. But I also used it to take my own mask off of mental illness and say, I'm a man, you know, a middle-aged man. I live with OCD, depression, and anxiety. And I've struggled with them for a long time. And so it was, it was an idea to share information about mental health discussions and, and be my authentic self. And, and from there, I started some social media and also the Mindful Men podcast too, because I really loved sharing the story about what it's like to live with OCD and know my house is not clean, even though it might look clean behind me. OCD is not just about being clean, you know, or depression is not just about being sad and, and stuff like that, or anxiety is not just this. And burnout is all these things that is not just a workplace thing as well. Big in the NDIA, big in any high KPI environment as well, most public service agencies. So I just wanted to share. And so, yeah, we're 107 episodes or so, do it weekly. So it's, just, it's a show that inspires guys particularly, and me as a guy, just to be mindful of how they're showing up in life what's going on for them so that maybe if they want to get some help, maybe through a therapist like me or somebody else, they can go, you know what, if Simon can talk about these things for an hour or if Simon's guests can talk about it, I had Hannah on there earlier today, I'm going to looking forward to that episode coming out, is maybe I can do it too. And I often say to participants maybe potentially coming to do me with therapy and then they're like, and the question is, how do I get this guy in therapy? It's usually from a support coordinator or, or a partner or a wife or a daughter or whatever. And so we can't. But one of the ways you can get them to kind of check me out is check out the podcast. You know, they, they'll hear me speak about these topics that might relate to them. I've had, you know, participants with, you know, I've had uh, borderline personality disorder, or psychosocial disabilities. I've had a few spinal cord injuries um, on there, actually, some really cool um, conversations there. Start having these conversations about, you know, the psychosocial disability, mental health, a lot of depression stuff that I've talked about, you know, alcohol and drugs misuse. That's often in the stuff that I work with participants as well is it's not just about disability. It's about their whole life. What are they doing to mask the disability? Are they drinking and taking too many drugs or whatever? Um, are they involved in the justice system or mental health system? I've got a few participants involved with the mental health system as well. And so we just have honest, mindful conversations and then hopefully leave them with some inspiration to take it to the next level, you know, be better versions of themselves, build their capacity or whatever, or engage, you know, with a provider like myself. So. Yeah, I really love the the diversity of the topics and some of the topics you go through, especially some around um, uh, becoming a dad and that mm. family sort of thing because we hear a lot of about how like becoming a mum sort of affects, but that conversation around dads yeah, yeah, absolutely. Isn't as prevalent. Absolutely. And, and, and as a flashback to my planner days, particularly in that child protection space that I worked with, dads would be the ones that were absent from the conversations, whether they're at work or whether they had left the family, whether they're in jail, whether that they passed away or, or whatever, or they just couldn't be found. 
dad were often like mums would come to the conversations, foster mums as well, foster mums and just mums in general, or participants by themselves. And they don't have this positive male role model. In fact, a lot of the referrals I get for work in, in Mindful Men is Simon, I've got a, this young teenage boy. So I work with boys as well, not just, just older you know, 18 pluses. Is we're looking for that positive male role model. I'm like, well, I can try to be that. Like, I'm not, it's not guaranteed, but I can draw from my experience as a dad, as a guy that's lived with mental health, you know, health conditions, as just a bloke, you know, an Aussie bloke who doesn't take life too seriously. And hopefully that that is that positive male role model. And in between, we can build capacity, we can overcome stereotypes or challenge stereotypes and and yeah, just live live life by design as opposed to life on autopilot. You've got a um a great little, I think it's a blackboard or something with some words on the back, which is yeah. nothing mentioned, nothing gained if I'm seeing squinting in the background. Yes, that's thing. it. Was that sort of the, the, the motto that you sort of used when you were like after you sort of went through that burnout, left the agency and I, I'm sort of dealing with the masters and what, yeah, what's next type of thing. Yeah, that's actually this month's weird. So I do this every month. I change the motto. So this is this month's one. And and that's because, you know, 2024 is a big year for, for mindful men trying to try new things. Uh, I'm someone, someone with OCD, anxiety, burnout traits, perfectionism traits. I have a lot of ideas but don't do them because I worry about failure. And so this year is about me putting myself out there. But but coming back to the burnout thing and, and, and demasking the mental health thing, is, it's very similar. It's like nothing changes if nothing changes. If we keep doing the same old thing, and I, and I talk about this with the guys in therapy as well, if we keep showing up the same way, then how are we going to be better? Instead of sitting here and talking about how miserable we are and, and stuff like that, how can we actually break out of that cycle and, and grow for the better? So... That's, I guess, a play to that as well. And that's those kind of those affirmations that I put in the in the home office every month play to what's on my mind during that month. So there's been other months, you know, last month was Christmas and New Year's, so it was just about a happy holiday season. But other times it's been like it's not weak to speak or it's okay to be not okay. All these things reminding me as a practitioner and a person as well, and a guy particularly, that we can break out of these boxes that we've put ourselves in or maybe society's put us in as well. We talk about social constructs of masculinity, for example. Growing up in the 80s, 90s, 90s, northern suburbs of Adelaide, I learned very quickly what it meant to be a boy and, a, and then be a man was to be someone who sucked it up and carried on, didn't talk about stuff as well. So a lot of these affirmations are me keeping that lid off because I don't want to put that lid back on and keep that mask off. I want to be my true, authentic self. And that's what mindfulness is for me is living life authentically and true to yourself and and hopefully inspiring other guys to do that as well. Yeah, it's um, one of those points you said there about coming up with all these ideas and just not too sure it. One of uh, <laughs> my favourite, I, I do this all the time though, but one of my favourite episodes because we're in the lead up to, to this podcast, so jump through yours. I think one of my favourite episodes that I skimmed through was around imposter syndrome. Yeah. I think yeah. it's episode 72 for anyone wanting to jump into it. Um, look at me go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't um, even know that. You know that. That's great. <laughs> I, I was sort of skimming through to make sure I was right. Um, but it, it, it does. It, it It is something that we sort of go through as quite a bit. I know that um, stepping into this space when I was kind of more early days, and even still now, I've been in the industry in direct support sort of and in NDIS role and compliance for about six years now. But I've had lived experience since I was 
15, not including my own lived experience and trauma. But I still sort of have that same feeling as well. Like, am I stepping out of my box? Is this right? Should I be in this space in the first place? And then going, coming up with these ideas and then going, I don't know if I should implement them, jumping in the back of the corner and rocking back and forth in a fetal position. (laughs) Yes, that reminds me of my first few planning conversations. In fact, like having grown up with mum who's deaf, but not recognising it as disability. And then I came into the NDIA and never been in the disability space. I had that imposter syndrome. Who am I to be a planner and sit with someone with disability and hear their story and do their best work? But what I've discovered is it's not so much about your experience of disability. It's your your ability to connect and to hear a story and to hold space. And that's what I love being about as a therapist now is just the ability to be in a space with someone and just, be non-judgmental and hear what's going on and maybe provide some sort of words of wisdom or encouragement or a light at the end of the tunnel. And, and that's that's all it is, is, is just being human and, and connecting. It's, that's the most important thing. But I hear you on imposter syndrome. It's, it's, it's something that has has held me back a lot and, and, and hopefully not this year, but definitely not this year. I'm going to promise myself here right now it won't hold me back this year. I like that. I think I might take that mantra on myself. We'll see how we'll my touch base at the end of the yes. year and see how it compare yes. notes. It sounds like one of those prediction episodes I always hear on financial podcasts that I listen to. So that's what we're predicting. We're not going to hold ourselves back. Yeah. So it's come to the time of the podcast where I'm going to ask you, in your ideal world, what would the future of the NDIS look like? Yeah, I think we've touched on it a, a little bit or quite often actually is redesigning the NDIA from the inside out and and stripping it back to what it's meant to be. I tried to do a little bit of this internally when I was there and and try to get some some leeway, but I was just a planner and planners don't, aren't important when you're talking about senior management and policy areas and scheme actuaries and all this other BS really. But if we could strip it back to, to planners being able to connect with participants and not be pressured, maybe using AI a little bit more to, to pre-generate plans and, and, or get the back end of plans. Because as a planner, you would create a plan and there's this thing called the, oh, I can't remember what it's called, TSP. support package. The TSP for a support coordinator, for example, it would never generate for support coordination. So you've got to manually put it in. This is back when I was doing it. I'm not sure what it's like now. But using maybe more AI to, you know, when you're, you're, you're clicking all the boxes as a planner, and saying that they're in child safety or they're in the justice system or they're in hospital or whatever and they need support coordination, that the funding just automatically generates and that that becomes more of a true representation of what the participant needs as opposed to a lot of the manual imp, imp, you know, stuff that we used to do. I mean, again, two years is a long time. Hopefully that's all been addressed. I'm not sure. Um, but, yeah, really stripping it back from the inside out, getting rid of the silos. I used to hate every agency I worked in had silos get rid of them. You don't need them. Empower planners, in fact, like what they used to do is to be able to make the decision on a plan based on, you know, the conversation that they had, maybe getting them back out to homes and, and out into community again to see real life. And then funding the NDIS appropriately. So having a participant who has their their plans funding. So as a, as a provider now, so I do a lot of mobile therapy. So I'm out and about on the road a lot. And there's a lot of complaining about or travel providers charging travel. Well, if in the disability space, 
you know, I think they should charge travel in all the different schemes, you know, DVA and, and mental health scheme, Medi Medicare and all that type of stuff, because what that does is it enables you to go see the person that you're working with in their natural environment. So I do a lot of travel and I see people in their natural environment. That's much better representation of where they're at than sitting in my clinic or doing a telehealth, you know. Well, but Simon, if you had everyone going all the planners going into people's homes, they'd have too much compassion for them and then give them too much funding. Yeah, so you well, can't do that. <laughs> but that's maybe what we need is more compassion, more empathy, you know, more human, you know. They used to say that the participants were at the heart of everything that, of the NDIS, but that's just, it was just a saying. It just didn't mean anything. When you're so overworked, you're so stressed, there's too much red tape, there's too many silos. Because all the, what was really at the heart of the scheme was pressing approve. That was it. How many times can you press approve today? So if they can eliminate that stuff and hopefully, you know, as we said, you know, hopefully Bill Shorten's talking to the right people and not just talking to the people that are going to be yes men or women, you know, and, and actually talking to the people that know how it works on a day-to-day. -day. They're the ones that are dragging themselves to work and stuff like that. They're the people that you need to talk to. I was one of those people and, and, and I just got tired of putting my hand up and saying, I, either I need help or this is taking too long or, or I'm not sure what's going on here or try to reform it from the inside out, particularly in that child safety space. Nobody wanted to listen. So the more that they can listen and actually take action from that listening, I think the better it can be. And then get back to not worrying so much about financial sustainability, but just funding plans right because, you know, the economy can grow. So as a provider now, I get to benefit from working with participants because I get paid through their NDIS scheme to provide them therapy or to write and their report. And you can put food on your table and put exactly. pay other, other businesses to get your services and yeah. goods that you need to maintain life. Yeah, so this motto, this, this nothing venture, nothing gain, this year is me employing another practitioner so that we can take mobile therapy. The way that I do therapy, a little bit differently to most you know normal clinics, I can have someone in Brisbane and then eventually have someone in Adelaide and Melbourne and Perth and all over Australia and they do it from their car and they're meeting people where they're at, you know, participants where they're at. So not only am I getting paid, but I'm paying for my petrol, I'm paying car dealers to keep my cars on the road, I'll be buying fleet vehicles. It's, it, it expands much further than just, oh, you're a participant, your, fun, your funding's 10000 or $20,000 or $30,000 over budget, we've got to cut it back because it goes much broader than that. So I think we can look at it from the, the holistic, whole of, I guess, industry perspective and not be so hung up on, oh, you've got 10 hours of support coordination and it should be eight hours or five hours or, or whatever ridiculous number, arbitrary number that they put in these procedures that I was a planner and I would often go over. So I was one of those planners that was the compassionate overfunding planner. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and I wear that as a, as a badge of honour. So. <laughs> Oh, well, it's been so lovely to have you on the podcast. Where can people check you? We will have your um, details in the show notes, but um, where would you like to particularly direct people? Yeah, absolutely. Hannah, Sam, thanks so much, first of all, for having me on the show. I really have enjoyed this conversation. I love talking about the NDIS and disability. It's one of my passion things in life. Um but, yeah, anyone who wants to connect, it's just go through my website. It's mindful-men.com.au. There you get access to my therapy services if you're interested in therapy with me or my social media and the, the Mindful Men podcast as well. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been wonderful to hear your experiences and talk with you today. And I'll see you at the end of the year, Sam. We'll keep each other accountable for nothing. Excellent. Nothing Let's gained. do it. Nothing ventured, <laughs> nothing gained. Yes. <laughs> All right. Bye. All right. Huzzah. Thank you for listening. Please share with people you know. Until next time, as the Green Brothers say, don't forget to be awesome.